Welcome to Psychology Concepts Explained, and this is your host, Dr. C, professor of psychology for over 20 years and teaching only online classes for over 10 years. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals. And oftentimes, life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility. If you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com slash PsychExplained and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash psychexplained. You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Hello, Dr. C here. Today's lecture is brought to you by nature. We are out here at a state park, undisclosed location in Texas, and I'm recording this outdoors. So you may hear birds chirping, a boat in the distance, my wife and daughter giggling uh, from inside the camper van. But in any case, today's lecture is going to be covering the chapter typically called Learning Theories that's found in an introductory Introduction to Psychology course. And I think at first glance, this chapter does not seem very interesting. Uh, and in fact, you may not even know what it's going to cover. But trust me, once we're done covering today's lecture, I think you'll be able to see and view and understand behavior in a more systematic way. And hopefully you'll understand how 
these psychologists and this perspective called behaviorism works in terms of trying to view behavior in an objective and almost mathematical way okay and what's interesting is that these principles that you often find where people are training dogs and animals and animal shows with you know using treats and all that are the same principles that can be used for shaping human beings behavior we're not just talking about children right uh, adults also can conform to these principles as well all right so of course when we observe animals in nature you see that uh, an example in the textbook we're using in the in the book i'm using is openstax uh, psychology second edition from openstax.org and the example used in the textbook are sea turtles that are hatched and they just seemingly know what to do from the moment they, they crawl out of their eggs but as human beings um, our process of learning is a little bit more complicated than that and there are various layers of how we learn things okay for example um, at the very very beginning we learn through our reflexes that, and those are things we do innately that is we don't really have to learn to have a reflex so they're more simple, simpler than instincts. Uh, instincts involve more compl complex behaviors, but a reflex is like our eyes dilating or digestive, si digestive system working, uh, food in the mouth and our mouth waters. Right, those are things that are um, automatic reflexes that we don't even have to think to do. It does not involve any conscious effort. And whereas instincts are a little bit more complex, um, it has to do with uh, usually more complex thought and planning a little bit, uh, but it's definitely a little bit more complex than reflexes. So in general, learning, and it is a bit of common sense if you think about it, it has to do with picking up new behaviors or knowledge due to experiences we have in our lives, right? So acquiring skills, knowledge, sometimes it could be a a conscious act and sometimes maybe it's unconscious that is we did not intend to learn certain things um, an example that we can look at later are phobias right no one really plans to or intends to pick up a phobia of high places right or phobia of water or a phobia of a fear of public spaces right? these are picked up at some point in our lifetime and how we learn things has to do with associations so that's called associative learning and once you see this you see this all around us that is um, we make connections between stimuli now let's focus on this word for a moment stimulus or plural stimuli has to do with anything that our senses can pick up so it's anything that we can see hear touch etc okay and that's a very simple idea, just we're surrounded by stimuli, right? But we make connections between these stimuli. So for example, on this uh, picnic table here, I have a thermos, right? What, what do you associate a thermos with, right? Do you associate it with beer? Do you associate it with any kind of cold beverage? Not necessarily associate it with a hot beverage like coffee, right? And we have these associations all the time whether it's the, the use of our utensils, uh, bowls, and plates. I must be thinking about food. Those are the examples I can come up with. 
uh, different color schemes, the type of vehicle someone's drive, someone drives, right? Someone drives a fancy BMW. We think, oh, they must have money. So we're always making these associations around us. But we're going to break it down to the most uh, elementary explanations to, to think about how we as humans, as well as our, our pets, pick up these new behaviors over time. Okay, So today we'll be covering classical conditioning. So conditioning is another word for learning or process of learning. Operant conditioning and then observational learning, which are thought to be parts of the theory called behaviorism, which is a very dominant theory in psychology that was discussed in an earlier chapter. So classical and operant conditioning are traditionally thought of as being part of behaviorism. Not so much operant conditioning, but does have a lot of behavioral principles. So it's almost like an extension, a more recent extension of behaviorism. And just a quick overview of behaviorism. A behaviorist basically does not want to analyze what's happening inside your head, like emotions or thoughts or intentions, because those are not observable. So it's less scientific in a behaviorist mind. So to study behavior more objectively, more scientifically and systematically, one would only be able to study what they can see. All right. So these are the things that are happening outside of us. What we're exposed to, again, all those stimuli that I mentioned earlier, and, and how we respond to them. Okay, So that, in a sense, is what behaviorists try to do. So again, using this example I used before, you don't ask someone what they intend to do on a Wednesday morning. What you do is you actually watch what they've been doing on Wednesday mornings, right? To gather that behavior, you don't ask them because then that information is coming from inside their head and that's not objective. All right, let's start with classical conditioning. And again, I'm going to try to wrap all this up within one video, so feel free to break up the video yourself by pausing it or marking the times, okay? All right, now with classical conditioning, this was pioneered by Ivan Pavlov. He was a Russian physiologist in the early 1900s, and he actually stumbled upon this theory uh, or pattern of learning that he calls classical conditioning by accident. Okay, He was actually trying to study, and as a physiologist, he was trying to study the digestive system of dogs. So he actually had small vials attached to the mouths of these dogs in his laboratory. Hey, speaking of dogs, hear that? They're barking. And uh, they must be having a Pavlovian reaction to something. <laughs> okay, and and so these dogs in the laboratory, he wanted to measure how much salivation would go into their mouths, right, when they're exposed to meat powder or food, okay? But his experiments would always be ruined. All right, hello, camper, driving by. His experiments would always be ruined because even the moment when he opens the door to his lab and before he's able to start his experiment by producing a stimulus of meat powder, the dogs are already drooling, right, salivating, and therefore his it's messing up his measurements. Now those of you with pets at home know this process, right? Um, your dogs or cats, they don't get excited and start drooling only when the food is in front of them, right? They may get excited by the sound of the garage door opening or um, opening the cupboard or just shaking the box of dog biscuits, right? So you're actually noticing the same thing that Ivan Pavlov was noticing in his laboratory. 
But for you, it just seems like common sense. Okay, they're making these connections, you know, that the sound of the garage door is tied to food, you know. You may not have the terminology to break down each of those elements, but Pavlov, before he systematically started to experiment this phenomenon, was dumbfounded because the dogs kept spoiling his measurements, right? So he had inadvertently became a famous psychologist, even though he wasn't a psychologist. Now, what usually throws students of psychology off the track here when learning classical conditioning, I believe, is that they overcomplicate it, okay? A relatively simple idea, when you try to just sort of cram this in in one day, becomes complicated because of just the terms that are used. All right, so let's walk through these terms. Pavlov uses the term unconditioned and conditioned, right? So unconditioned basically means, um, and this word is also used as unlearned. And what does that mean? It sounds almost like we learned something and then we forgot it, but that's not really what it means. Unconditioned or unlearned actually means that we respond to something or learn something that happens automatically. In other words, we didn't have to use any effort or training to have that response to something, okay? Whereas conditioned means learned, means conditioned means that we went through a process in order to pick up this new behavior or new reaction to something. Okay, so those two words are very important. Unlearned versus learned, or unconditioned versus conditioned, okay? All right, so it's helpful that when you're learning classical conditioning to try to create this diagram of five elements Right? And whenever there's a new example that you're trying to either create or that's given to you on a quiz or in the textbook, you should be able to break down the example into these five parts. And then that way you'll re really have a really good understanding of classical conditioning. So here's my study tip. Once you learn some of the basic examples, like what happened to Pavlov's dogs in the laboratory, you should be able to create new examples. Right? Maybe that's happening in your household with pets or with the people around you, okay? And I'll try to help you with that. All right, so in this particular diagram, and I'll walk you through it, before conditioning means before this person or this animal learns something, learned this new skill, okay? Um, what we have every day is that we're exposed to a lot of different unconditioned stimuli, okay? What that means is that Remember what a stimulus means, something that our senses can pick up? So it's something that we're exposed to, see, hear, or touch, or whatever, or taste, that we do not have to learn to create a reflex or response, okay? And the responses in the classical conditioning are these gut reflexes, biological reflexes. There's no really any thought involved. These are automatic gut reactions like eating something that was spoiled and your body just goes through the process of expelling it or vomiting, okay? That's an automatic gut reaction or being startled, right? Um, something jump out, jumps out at you at night and you scream, right? That screaming, that excitement or fear is an automatic, unlearned, unconditioned response. So that's element number two. The unconditioned response is our natural, unlearned automatic reaction to something okay so these two are tied together the UCS and again it's the abbreviations that throw students off 
unconditioned stimulus. And let's go ahead and use the example from Pavlov's laboratory. He used food, okay? This is a stimulus that we're exposed to that we don't have to teach our body to respond. Our mouth, we don't have to consciously say, okay, mouth, you got to water now because I have food in my mouth. I'm trying to chew. It happens automatically. In fact, my mouth is watering just talking about it. Okay, so the unconditioned response happens, follows, right? So the UCS, you can draw an arrow, leads to the UCR. These two things usually go together, almost always, right? So every time you eat, every time you're startled, right, we're going to have a reaction. So that reaction is called the unconditioned response. We have a stimulus and a response. Food leads to salivation, okay? So again, this happens naturally in our environment without training, right, without learning. This is, this, is an, this is before learning. Now when we do learn, which we call conditioning, right, first we have to have a neutral stimulus, right? Neutral is something that doesn't bother us, right? Could be anything, could be a sound. And in the Pavlov's laboratory, he used the sound of a bell. First he tried it in the dog's presence and the dogs don't react one way or the other. Okay, so if there's something that you're eating, well, okay, sorry, not food, but something in our environment that we can see or hear, but it doesn't bother us, right? Then those things are neutral, like the color of the paint in the room or whatever, okay? Now, a neutral stimulus is necessary because this is how we learn new things. So, what if by accident the ringing of the bell, which is a neutral stimulus, was followed almost immediately by being fed, right? in terms of the dogs. And then of course, because they're being fed, it produces this unconditioned response of salivation. Okay, So we're adding something to this equation. Again, I want you to think mathematically. What we had before was food leads to salivation. Unconditioned stimulus leads to an unconditioned response. Now we add in a new element, right? The bell. And this could be anything really. This could be the sound of a word, this could be a light. I believe he used a light bulb, turning it on and off. Okay, could be any stimulus that doesn't really create a reaction already. Just something neutral. Pair it with food. Again, the, it has to be in that order. It doesn't make sense to do the food first, then ring the bell because the dog's face is going to be in the food. Right? They're not really going to notice anything. So you have to do this consecutively. So this is called the conditioning process. This pairing or this association. Now, depending on the dog. And we can't really know exactly how many times this was done. Maybe five times, maybe ten times, right? Then all of a sudden, the bell has meaning, right? It's no longer neutral. Just the ringing of the bell by itself, right? No food, okay? There's no unconditioned stimulus. Leads to an automatic reaction of salivation. So it's as if the bell was a substitute for the food. Now this is new, right? So because this is new, this is now a learned behavior. Now this dog is responding to a bell. Now if you think about it, you can almost use anything as a neutral stimulus. That'd be kind of cruel, and you can do this at home with your dog. I'm not going to teach you to do a cruel experiment, but how about just something novel? You know how your dog or cat responds to his name? What this means is that you can really name your dog and cat anything, okay? Um, the names don't matter. It's just a sound, right? They're responding to a sound because initially you would use that word, whatever their name is, and then at feeding time, and they came to eat the food, right? So the name became associated, a conditioned stimuli, to, uh, to having that reaction, right? 
so they get excited when they hear their name. So now you can name your dog anything. Okay, you can just try for the next week of using any random word like um, Chevrolet. Okay, say Chevrolet and then feed Chevrolet feed, and all of a sudden next week your dog is named Chevrolet, right? Because every time you call Chevrolet, they'll come say they'll come running, right? And so that's what a neutral stimulus is. Okay. So uh, I'm thinking Pavlov's dogs really need a lot of ther therapy because you have dogs that are drooling to bells. You have dogs that are drooling to the flicker of a light and to almost any stimulus that is used in an experiment. Okay, so here are the five elements, just to review. Take a neutral stimulus that does not affect the person or the dog, right? So in this case, it's a bell. You pair it with something that you know automatically causes a reaction. So you pair it with the food which brings about salivation, okay? So that was the UCS, unconditioned stimulus, leads to an unconditioned response. And then all of a sudden, whatever was the neutral stimulus is always going to become the conditioned stimulus, okay? Then, and again, try not to do it by memorization, but do it by logic, right? This neutral stimulus was meaningless, but if you pair it with food, it becomes meaningful. So it's the same thing. It's still the bell, right? But it goes from a neutral stimulus to a control to a, a condition stimulus sorry okay which leads to the condition response so this response is always the same you notice salivation 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 right so it's just that this dog is responding to something new that's learning okay now keep this outline and see if you can fill in right different types of things okay uh, in this outline as examples of classical conditioning. Alright, so here's a visual of what's happening with the dog and you can look at this on your own when you have a chance, but basically real quickly, the dog, this is happening automatically, okay? The UC, oops, UCS is the food, right? Unconditioned stimulus leads to an unconditioned response, okay? Now, during conditioning there's a neutral stimulus being introduced, the bell right before feeding and they're still drooling okay the little puddle of drool over here by the food okay and then after conditioning right Pavlov would have to test I mean, let me ring the bell now see what happens oh look at that we have a measurement right this is something the dog didn't do before so this is now learning okay and animals may pick up this in the wild right if, if it's not instinctual Maybe um, animals that learn to hunt. I can visualize a grizzly bear trying to catch fish, right? They're trying all sorts of methods, and all of a sudden, hey, one particular method worked, and they remember that and try it again, okay? Um, but, uh, oh, but actually that grizzly bear example might be closer to operant conditioning. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. All right. So higher order conditioning, sticking with classical conditioning, basically means, and again, you can do this experiment at home, <laughs> if you want to with your pets is that you first know that you have an unconditioned stimulus and salivation right so a cat for example is going to respond to food okay and then but each time you fed the cat you used an electric can opener and it made a sound I think this textbook author must have said in one of my lectures many many years ago that's the exact example I used kind of freaky alright so what's going to happen over time is that the electric can opener which was neutral becomes a conditioned stimulus over time. So that, by itself, produces a conditioned response, okay? The can opener. But what if you added a stimulus, 
a neutral stimulus, like a squeaky cab in a door, as the textbook example, right? And you paired it with the electric cantilever. No food, right? But it leads to salivation in the cat because they're responding to the can opener. But if you pair that enough times, precede the can opener with the squeaky door, suddenly the squeaky door by itself becomes a new condition stimulus. So it's like layering, right? Like an onion, okay? First you add the can opener, well you add the food, then you add the can opener, then you add, and you could potentially add more. Let's use an everyday example. Uh, how many of you enjoy going to the to the dentist? Okay, uh, probably not, right? Now, if it was a painful, frightful experience, think about this, right? The unconditioned response, that is, that is no one had to teach you to have this reaction, was probably pain or, or fear, okay? So if we use pain over here okay, as the unconditioned response, now what was it that caused it? Probably the drill, right? The act of drilling directly causes pain, okay? You don't have to teach anyone to feel that pain, okay? So what kind of things, what parts of the actual experience do we associate with pain, okay? Now, here technically we should say drilling, right? But the site of the drill could be a conditioned stimulus, right? Okay. Now, of course, it's more complicated than that. If you stare at a drill, you kind of have prior knowledge of what dentists do, you might be frightened by the sight of it, right? But let's say for a younger child, they don't know what the drill is for. Now they know, okay? They see it and they get freaked out. But what if also they get freaked out by anyone wearing a nurse's uniform or a dental uniform, right? So now you have someone wearing scrubs, drilling, causing pain. Now all of a sudden scrubs becomes a second or higher order stimulus. So higher order conditioning is happening here. Now when I was younger, it was a little bit more than that, right? It was uh, getting a shot. So the shot itself caused pain. Any Anyone who's in the role of a nurse would make me nervous, which causes pain, right? There's another layer. Getting the letter in the mail saying that I have a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment, that little card that I'm holding causes me some anxiety, right? That's higher order conditioning. That's like a chain link effect, a domino effect to the actual source of what caused that uh, pain. Yeah, I need a lot of help. Okay, so uh, some other aspects of classical conditioning that we should know is that with classical conditioning, right, we acquire behavior that's called acquisition. Okay? Sometimes behaviors go away over time. That's extinction. Right. So in Pavlov's dog's example, if Pavlov wanted to untrain his dogs, hey, a boat, or maybe a jet ski, no, it's a boat, all right, then wh what would Pavlov have to do, right? Pavlov would basically have to continue to ring the sound of the bell, but without the food, right? We know the food is the what causes that reaction of salivation. Then you can sort of imagine or visualize that maybe after a month of just ringing the bell at random times of the day, and a dog drools a lot, that over time they might stop drooling because it's like, okay, I keep ringing the damn bell. I'm not getting any food. You know, why am I having this reaction? And that reaction might go away, and that's called an extinction of behavior. Okay? But in many cases, a person or a dog might have a spontaneous recovery. Right? So it is what it sounds like. That is, 
what seemingly a behavior that seems to be extinct all of a sudden one day you ring that bell and that dog drools again okay for whatever reason okay. all right so let's continue on and here in the textbook they show a curve right of the acquisition which is a conditioned stimulus paired with so that's the bell paired with the unconditioned stimulus that's the food right and then once that's learned and once they just continue to ring the bell with no food over time this behavior is going to go down okay uh, it's it's becoming extinguished if you use the verb form but then on occasion the behavior would just spontaneously come back and that's called the spontaneous recovery okay all right now what could also happen and again we're adding more details to classical conditioning is that some dogs or people might experience what's called stimulus discrimination okay and using Pavlov's example is that maybe there are different tones of bells if Pavlov's dogs for some reason only respond to a specific bell right they're discriminating amongst the different stimuli of, of bell out there and they're only drooling to that particular bell okay it's like someone being deathly afraid of um, dogs because they were bitten by one when they were younger right but they're only afraid of particular dogs maybe they were attacked by a chihuahua and then after that time they only have a dog phobia of chihuahuas but they see german shepherds and dobermans and and, and they don't have a problem right that's called stimulus generalized uh, stimulus discrimination sorry stimulus generalization is the opposite right where the organism as the book calls it could be a person or dog have a learned reaction to stimuli that's very similar to the conditioned stimulus so using the being bitten by a dog example right you were bitten or attacked by a specific dog which leads to a fear of all kinds of dogs or even cats or other kinds of furry animals of the same size right so that would be called stimulus generalization okay so in Pavlov's dogs example it would be anything that sounds remotely like a bell the dog would drool okay all right so let's move on and uh, let's talk about this character John B Watson who's been uh, called the father of this field of behaviorism right now he was um, notorious for doing an experiment with infants okay not even toddler age okay because he wanted to know and the reason he used infants was that he wanted to know if it's possible that before you know a human being is developed and has all these complex thoughts can they learn to become afraid of something that they weren't afraid of before using classical conditioning so without any prior learning so why not use a blank slate use infants right of course your first thought should be well isn't that harmful shouldn't that be unethical and not be done and you would be correct so this was very unethical research and uh, and his most famous and because it was caught on film his most famous subject was named little Albert the chubby little baby if you google little Albert and John Watson you'll see some original footage from the 1920s from this experiment and what he did was that if you think about if you break down classical conditioning and its elements right he wanted to see if babies like little Albert can learn to fear something they weren't afraid of before basically develop a phobia like artificially just in a laboratory create a phobia so 
first he found a lot of neutral stimuli. Remember, that's one element. Rabbits, dogs, okay? Um, and what's famous in terms of what students tend to remember seeing was the white rat, okay? But there were many other items involved. And then he knew that, you know, for this experiment you need an unconditional, unconditioned stimulus that leads to an unconditioned response, something that happens naturally that uh, babies like little Albert would have an automatic reaction to. And he figured out that a very loud noise would startle, right? I know this is very cruel, okay? We, we know this. And would cause um, little Albert to be stunned, okay, and start crying, okay, be startled, okay? So now we have the essential elements. We have the neutral stimulus. Let's use the white rat. We have a loud sound is an unconditioned stimulus, right? It's based on something the baby can hear, startles them, causes the unconditioned response of fear, okay? Well, then over time, they presented the white rat, and the white rat, you know, little Albert was curious, just sort of playing with it, and we run around, right? And then all of a sudden, bam, okay, a loud noise appears, and he starts crying, okay? Now, of course, there's the baby's not old enough to make this logical connection. This is not a logical process. Like, oh, a loud noise occurred in the presence of a white rat. I better be afraid of the white rat. Now, this is becoming ingrained in an unconscious level. It's just an experiential type thing. It's not something that's logically thought out. So after repeated pairings of playing with the white rat, all of a sudden a loud noise occurred. Over time, just the sight of the rat would cause um, little Albert to become very frightened and startled okay and he also experienced stimulus generalization and, and i hope you have a chance to see some authentic video of this where um john watson and his his uh, assistant rosalind rayner would even wear a furry mask which would be frightening under normal circumstances but would really freak out little albert okay and uh that was what john watson was notorious for okay and uh, let me summarize here a little bit of a uh, background. John B. Watson eventually was fired from his academic position. But what was interesting was that, and this is based on what I've read, okay, so I'm pretty sure this part's accurate. It was not because of this unethical study of causing phobia in infants. You would think that's a fireable offense. But he was a fire because he ended up having an affair with his assistant, which was Rosalind Rayner. Okay. And he lost his academic position and no one else would hire him. So he ended up, shamefully, going into advertising. So these is the, this is where all these psychologists who get rejected in academia go to make money. No, I'm just kidding, okay. But to me, it's almost as if a psychologist, if they were to do that, it's like jumping to the dark side. This is my personal opinion, right? Instead of using psychology for good to educate people, you're using psychological techniques to manipulate people to buy products, right? And he used classical conditioning to sell products so early on if you look at old printed advertising he was the first to use associative learning you know it used to be ads were just names and pictures and logos right and he started using attractive images of people okay by today's standards they're kind of lame okay just very conservative but back then it was like oh that's a very attractive female in that in that uh ad for uh, cigarettes for example you know that which was commonly done back then so he was trying to associate status attractiveness to create a gut reaction so 
you know, advertising industry ran with that. And that's why you see so much sex in advertising, because they know that sex sells, right? It creates a particular reaction in people. You have a more or less an animalistic or positive association with the product. And if you think about nowadays in our cancel culture, right, when someone does something that most people find offensive and all that, and then if they were a famous spokesperson for a product and that and that sponsor would just cancel them, right? Fire them. Say, oh, okay, you're no longer going to be in our Diet Coke ads. Well, why is that, right? I know we get tired of talking about cancel culture, but if you think about it from the company's point of view, there's, there's an association, right? They don't want to have a negative association of this individual, you know, with this product. And so as a private company whose goal is to make money, you know, you can't really blame them for wanting to get rid of a negative image that's associated with with uh, their product. Okay, now let's go on to operant condition. Again, this video can be quite long, so feel free to break it up into different parts. So we're going to go on to part two, which is operant conditioning. So we covered classical conditioning. That was Ivan Pavlov and John Watson. And remember those examples and how classical conditioning worked, right, with those five parts. B.F. Skinner, uh, one of the most famous psychologists, um, proposed a theory called operant conditioning. And this is different, okay? So this is not about our gut reactions. So it's not about salivation. It's not about fear. But these are behaviors that we more or less do every day that you think you're choosing to do, okay? Let's call them voluntary behaviors, even though uh, B.F. Skinner would not call them voluntary so let's say we have an action or behavior he proposed that and this is a very simplified form okay it's a lot more complicated than this that whatever it is we do in life brushing our teeth that we're something we're actively doing reading a book walking running exercising all that almost everything we do is followed by a consequence right and this consequence in turn affects that behavior right will it increase will it decrease will it go to zero okay now of course there are other elements in this model right but this is the most simple explanation is that our everyday behaviors are in a sense fueled by our consequences okay so these consequences are called reinforcements right and you may have heard of positive and negative reinforcement in your everyday life and they're called punishments okay now this is very important. I want you to think of operant conditioning like classical conditioning that's mathematical. I don't want you to think about, oh, reinforcement means good, something positive, punishment is bad. It's not always the case, okay? You need to just think that a reinforcement increases behavior. Think plus sign, okay? It's not about what that reinforcement is, it's the effect it has. Punishment has a minus sign. So it subtracts that behavior, causes that behavior to go down, right? Whatever that is. Okay, a lot of students are get thrown or define what a consequence is, reinforcement or punishment, by what that reinforcement and punishment is, right? A cake is not always a reinforcement, right? Um, being yelled at is not always punishment. It's only a reinforcement or a punishment based on what happens to the behavior. Does it go up? Does it go down? Right? 
that is what defines the consequence okay all right and uh, let's see here so just to summarize the basic aspects of operant conditioning right if we come across the word positive it means something is added right come across the word negative it means something is taken away okay when it comes to these uh, consequences right so reinforcement means we increase the behavior punishment acts to decrease the behavior right? so we only give it this label reinforcement or punishment if it if it succeeds at increasing or decreasing the behavior okay so again don't just assume that what seems good to you is a reinforcement it has to increase the behavior for it to be reinforcement okay and uh, I'm gonna skip over this real quick this is just a basic comparison between classical and operant conditioning okay all right now B.F. Skinner was known for using these little contraptions to train mice and pigeons and other small animals and those were nicknamed Skinner boxes okay and the basic design is that uh, a reward is given usually a food pellet if the animal does whatever it is the experimenter wants them to do okay so the simplest form of a Skinner box has to do with a little lever right and when it or they could be introducing sound or lights okay different kinds of stimuli in the box and then food comes out okay so this is very tricky we actually did this uh, in one of the classes back at University of Houston where I taught uh, part-time and I taught this class called learning theories and we had a lab which was really cool we actually had lab rats and they were not students okay they were actual rats so each group of students were responsible for their rat of course they had a backup rat in case the first rat was not cooperative okay but the students were given an assignment that you need to train your rat to be able to pull on a string that turns on the light in the box it's like oh crap how do you do that right you can't just ask the rat nicely please rat come on you can't hold the rat's paws and have them pull on it right so what has to happen is that whenever the rat gets close to the string they would push a button and a food pellet comes out now at the beginning the rat's not gonna have a clue like well what did I do that caused that right and then they'll do everything they'll go to sniff around the corners and then when they get close to the to the little string again another food pellet comes out maybe two right now they know okay so they start walking toward the string hanging out there right but then no more food pellet comes out so you wait until another behavior maybe it touches it with its paw and then you get food two or three food pellets right then the rat is slowly associating certain actions with their consequences oh I'm getting a reward for touching the string what else can I do right and eventually when they pull on it just tug on it even with their teeth you give a, a few more pellets okay and that's how and this took weeks by the way okay so whatever the task was and and, and I think that's what I remember um, you know the students would just it's kind of funny watching the students watch this rat and this would not work if the rat was just sitting still and never moved right so you you don't have an opportunity to create a reinforcement so then you have to get the backup rat so if the rat's too lazy to be conditioned right you can't reward them for just sitting there all day so um, so some action has to take place okay all right so let's uh, look at some examples of 
different types of reinforcement. There's positive reinforcement, right? This sounds like common sense. Sounds like something we hear in everyday conversation or in education. All right. Now here's the key. We have the behavior, right, leads to a consequence. And that consequence is a reinforcement only if it increases that behavior in the future, right? So oftentimes in education, the examples in the book are high grades, right? So think about it. You study, study, study. You get increasing grades. Wow, I'm going to study more. Normally we would think, oh, that's motivating. But would Skinner use the word motivating? No, because a behaviorist would not use a word like motivation. They would just look at it mathematically. Oh, when uh, Jill gets 75 points, they study more the next week. Right? There's no examining what's happening inside their head. They're simply looking at grades and what effect does it have on behavior. Okay, Maybe a paycheck does the same thing. Right? But not always, right? Okay, it's only a re positive reinforcement if the paycheck helps that person continue to work or even work harder, right? It doesn't happen always in some cases. Sometimes you can overpay someone, right? Then they become lazy and say, hey, I'm getting a great paycheck. Why do I have to work so hard? Then in that case, the paycheck turns into a punishment, <laughs> okay? So again, it's not what this is. It's the effect it has on the behavior. Sometimes you praise someone, right? If you're a good supervisor, you use a lot of praise, okay? And if you feel like that has the effect of uh, increasing the worker's effectiveness, again, you notice I'm not using motivation, but their output, right? Yes, you, you workers, you're just all robots, out outputting <laughs> product, okay? Then the praise would act as a positive reinforcer, okay? I'm going to give you an example here. What if... Um, a teenager went to get a pierced nose, right? So they got a piercing, and the consequence was that they got yelled at by their parents. Okay? What would we call that consequence? A punishment or a reinforcement? We don't know. There's not enough information. What if they came back and pierced more? Well, I got a belly piercing after being yelled at. Okay? Then being yelled at was a positive reinforcement okay it's something that occurred that was added right being yelled at is something that's given to someone increase the likelihood of that behavior okay so this parent is probably going what the heck you know I learned psychology I'm trying to punish my child to decrease the behavior but I yelled at them perhaps being yelled at negative attention is a reinforcement maybe that's what they want they want to rebel they want to stand out so if they praised the tattoo, or the piercing rather, okay, oh, that's great. How many can you fit in that nose of yours, right? <laughs> so, you know, you praise them for getting a piercing, then the, maybe the piercing behavior would go down. So the praise could act as a punishment, okay? So I'm not trying to confuse you. I'm just trying to let you know that a positive reinforcement is not always something we think of as pleasant or nice. It's the effect it has on our behavior. So let's talk about negative reinforcement. This is something that we take away. This is a consequence that happens that takes away something. But because something is removed, it increases our behavior. Remember, it's still a reinforcement. Okay? A lot of people really confuse this. And I don't know what to do because year after year I explain this to the best of my ability. 
and students sometimes get confused so maybe I'm just barking up the wrong tree here but focus on reinforcement the behavior itself goes up negative is a minus sign something was removed instead of something was added okay so a nice example would be when you go into your car right the action the behavior of putting on a seatbelt is something you do every time are you doing that because of positive reinforcement is there a little recording in the car that goes good job Jack you buckled your seatbelt no okay do you get points for that no there's nothing added there's, but so why is it you're doing it okay Skinner believed that every action has to have a consequence to fuel to feed that behavior we don't buckle our seatbelt for nothing so what is fueling it we're not rewarded for it we don't gain anything out of it right I mean do we have an app, app from their auto insurance company that says if you buckle every time your car is moving that will give you you know bonus points that you can buy things with like from Amazon that'd be kind of cool actually but no we don't have that so the reason we buckle our seatbelt is due to negative reinforcement think about what's taken away right remember the beeping sound that happens in a car you know older vehicles they have the really annoying sound right and then it's like oh crap that's that's hurting my ears I better buckle up right? once you buckle up the sound goes away so that's removing something we did not want and therefore it in increases our behavior or maybe we don't want to get a ticket right so the avoidance of a ticket is a consequence by putting on your seatbelt okay you drove around all day for two hours you came home without a ticket you did good you're gonna wear your seatbelt again tomorrow not because you gained something but because you avoided something unpleasant okay or uh, or negative in that sense okay so again negative reinforcement doesn't always mean bad right? it just means that you're gonna continue to do something because you avoided or removed something why do you always use an umbrella when it's raining right do you gain something out of no you're avoiding getting wet right so that is the consequence that will fuel the action of using the umbrella again if you had an umbrella that had five holes in it and every time you used it you get totally soaked right that is not the result a consequence that will fuel the use of that umbrella you will use a different umbrella okay so that behavior will stop because of that consequence so getting wet was a punishment okay so here we go now, I know when we think of punishment we're thinking about parents punishing kids or sending people to jail but it's not as simple as that it's really just a consequence that occurs after a behavior that decreases our behavior right so it could be a little thing it doesn't have to be a dramatic thing like sending someone to prison or being executed okay um, so let's look at different kinds of po uh, punishment so just like we had positive and negative reinforcement we also have positive and negative punishment right so positive punishment means plus sign something was added right something was given to you something that was added to your experience after behavior which acts to decrease that behavior right so if yelling at the teenager for getting um, getting a pierced nose ring actually created the effect of them removing the nose ring stopping piercing then that actually worked the yelling was a positive punishment again positive doesn't mean good or bad okay it just means a plus an addition 
right? Um, so you're walking through the house, you stub your foot on the side of or leg of a table because it was dark, right? And you're like, oh, that was painful, right? So kicking the leg of a table in the dark right, caused pain. And that was punishing because the next time you go through that area, you turn on the light. Okay, you discontinued walking in the dark. Okay, so that behavior stopped right away. So you had a change in behavior. You learned something, didn't you, from that process? Okay, I'm not going to do that again. That's the process of learning. And that's an example of positive punishment because pain was inflicted onto you. Okay, now negative punishment is a type of punishment where something is taken away from you to decrease the likelihood of behavior, right? You see parents do this all the time where, okay, you misbehave, you're going to get a timeout. What is a timeout? It's taking away someone's freedom, taking away someone's freedom to do things. You take away their phones or video game, right? Now, my nephew, uh, Kane, I'll tell you his name, <laughs> he um, was very brilliant as a child because my sister would try to punish him by saying, you know, he loves toy trains, right? Something valuable. So I'm going to punish your, you acting out by taking away your train. Okay? Now, you would think that would work, right? Oh, you're taking something valuable away. They will stop misbehaving. But instead, Cain would say, go ahead. I hate trains anyway. So you see what Cain did. Cain negated the positive value of the train, right? So it's no longer going to be an effective form of punishment. You have to take away something of value to discontinue that behavior. And the train was no longer bad. He just like took away the value, right? That's really quite brilliant for, I think, maybe four years old <laughs> at the time, right? And so what else can... So my sisters, um, we grew up at a time pre-cell phones, right? So for my sisters, having the use the home phone to call friends was like a lifeline. It was like their oxygen tank. So my parents would, you know, ground them if they did something bad and say, you have no phone access for the next three days, right? And they would just be like, you know, gasping for air for the next few days, right? And, but if that happened to me, right, if I misbehave and my parents use that same punishment technique for me, it wouldn't have worked anyway because I had so few friends. I don't talk to anybody on the phone, right? It's of no value for me. So that form of punishment would not work. In fact, my friends just randomly show up to my house. I don't even need to call them. Right? So so just because something is punishing for one may not be punishing for someone else. So again, the key here is what is the net effect? Again, think mathematically of this form of punishment on the behavior right well also in this consequence was the punishment something that was given to someone or taken away right and so if you think about speeding and you're fined for that right and then you no longer speed for a while okay so your speeding behavior decreases that fine is that a positive or negative punishment right well it's a negative punishment because something of value was taken away from you money right um so a speeding ticket, that's kind of a complicated one, right? The moment you get pulled over by a cop and you get a ticket, that piece of paper in your hand is something that's given to you. And then what do you do right afterwards? You know, you drive the speed limit. Or, you know, you kind of freaked out. It's like, oh, man, I'm going to drive slow. Okay? 
that could be interpreted as positive punishment because you, you haven't paid the fine yet, you haven't gone to court yet, but you received a piece of paper, and that paper was punishing enough. Okay? Uh, sending someone away to jail, you could argue that's more negative punishment. But if someone was assaulted while in prison, and beaten, or something worse, then you could also say that was positive punishment as well. Okay. All right, operant conditioning oftentimes is used to shape behavior. So shaping is often used when uh, you want to reward a behavior, a target behavior, but the target behavior is kind of complicated. It has several steps, and the person or the dog or animal that you're training won't be able to go from zero to performing that task. Like, you can't just go from zero to train your dog to catch a frisbee in midair, right? It just doesn't happen. You have to train them step by step, and that's what shaping is. So you apply a reward or positive reinforcement after maybe they did the dog bites the frisbee so you're holding it they bite it you praise them oh good 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 right and then you sort of uh drop it right in front of them it might land on their forehead or whatever but after a few times they catch it once they do catch it from just dropping in front of them you praise them like heck and then they know that oh you like it when i uh i get something good when i'm when i catch the frisbee with my mouth and then over time you can increase the distance and and that's how that's an example of shaping right and this can be done with children too if you're trying to shape uh help your child to make their bed right you, you can't just show them once and then they'll figure it out you have to sort of encourage them when they get part of it right uh, get it half done then encourage them again when they get it completely done Okay, now when it comes to reinforcers, there are primary and secondary reinforcers. Okay, and again, these are this is part of operant conditioning. So these are different categories. So primary reinforcers are things that we do not have to learn for that thing to have value for us. Okay, so think about a caveman. Okay. Neanderthal, what would be reinforcing or valuable to them? Well, food, sex, water, sleep, right? The basic things, things that bring pleasure. Okay, so so those are the kinds of things, um, like the book used the example of, uh, you know, on a hot day, jumping to a swimming pool, right? That's a primary reinforcer, that, that particular consequence. A secondary reinforcer is something we use as a reinforcer that is that we in human society had to learn to have value of, right? So if you give a Neanderthal, a caveman, a $20 bill, they're just going to like, I don't know what to do with it, okay? But they, they don't see any value in that. They don't know what the value is. So that's something that we had to learn that has value. So money is not a primary reinforcer. It's a, it's a secondary reinforcer because we had to learn through society that this thing has value, this piece of paper has value. Okay, so there are many things like that, like trophies, for example. Right, a trophy is just a dumb thing made of marble and plastic, right? And uh, it's not recyclable. You know, it's just a waste uh, of resources. Okay, but we attach value to it, right? To someone, it's valuable because they earned it from doing something at work, right? So those are the kind of things that we call secondary reinforcers. All right, so let me talk um, real briefly about reinforcement schedules now. 
this is kind of interesting because if you want to look at any kind of behavior and why we continue to do certain things it should fit into one of these four categories of what's called reinforcement schedules now first we need to define what a partial reinforcement is okay um, because these reinforcement schedules are typically called partial reinforcers because they're opposite of continuous reinforcement so let me define that first actually a continuous reinforcement means that you're getting some sort of positive reinforcement after each act right now this is very unlikely to occur in real life is this it's like a kindergarten student getting a little gold star for every little positive thing they did throughout the day that would be continuous reinforcement right that's rarely gonna happen okay so in our daily lives we do things we go to work um, we brush our teeth we comb our hair whatever it is whatever these daily or monthly habits we pay our taxes once a year we're reinforced to do those things you know there's a consequence remember that feeds that behavior that fuels the behavior but what's magical about it is that you don't have to reward someone after each act like at work if you're a supervisor right you know you don't pay someone every hour even though they're earning an hourly wage can you imagine you know going online on your phone and looking at your bank accounts like an hour later boom some money's in there right that would be more continuous reinforcement but our paycheck doesn't work that way it's not continuous but it's partial and what I meant by magical was that you don't have to reinforce someone every single instance to get them to do something people and animals are willing to do something if you just reinforce them once in a while and those are these schedules that we're talking about here okay all right so and again this you just have to give yourself time to digest these examples and these categories it's not possible to read through it memorize the definitions there's no memorization that will work here it has to do with logical thinking okay all right let's look at these two words fixed and variable fixed means something that's known ahead of time variable means something that's unknown unpredictable okay so these four categories also come in the form of intervals interval has to do with time right you get paid once a month right monthly is a time element versus ratio right a ratio means that this is something not based on time but it's based on how many things are happening okay right so I know this one's kind of hard to understand but it's like being paid after you make five phone calls right that could take you a minute that could take you 10 minutes or an hour right doesn't matter it's not a time element you're getting paid by after a number of occurrences of something so that's called a ratio so remember interval has to do with time ratio has to do with number of occurrences of something happening fixed is known variable is unknown or unpredictable all right, so let's look at these four schedules and try to think of examples in your everyday life that fit into this schedule okay a fixed interval it means a reinforcement is going to happen at a very specific time or known time okay so um, maybe you have a medicine schedule right the alarm goes off oh I need to take a pill okay um, you get paid on certain days of the month and usually the money goes in at a certain time of day that's a fixed interval okay so can you imagine the second example a variable interval something happening at an unpredictable time can you imagine being paid that way who would want a job where they don't know when they're going to be paid right 
So you know that as an employer, you probably shouldn't use a variable interval pay structure, okay? But maybe a bonus, right? Wouldn't be a bad thing to do at a variable interval as a surprise, but not the regular pay, okay? So you can think of many examples that fit into the fixed interval. There are examples of things that happen at a variable interval, like when you send a message to someone, there's no guarantee. You don't know when they will message you back, right? So if receiving a message back is a reinforcer for you to continue messaging them, right? Uh, that's a bit unpredictable, and it's a, it's a time thing. It's a time element to it, so that's called a variable interval, okay? Um, and the example they use in the book is checking Facebook, right? I don't know why they would bother putting the name Facebook in there. That's just unnecessary advertising. Okay, how about a fixed ratio? This is the example I gave earlier where, a, for example, someone is paid after completing a certain number of tasks. So I can imagine like um, an assembly line where um, you're given the parts of a bicycle and your job is to put it together right, for customers, right, for, the, for the shop. And you get paid after, you know, during the day or during, you know, again, it's not about time, but after your contract is, you, you assemble five bicycles, you get paid 200 bucks, right? So um, you don't need to use the word motivated or, or whatnot. It's just the effect of being paid that money. So you can imagine a person may work pretty quickly and it, it might help someone work very hard if you have that kind of shop and you pay them on that kind of schedule. Right? They may be very productive. If you have that kind of shop and you're paying someone by time, right? they get paid every Monday, right? their production level might be less than the person who's being paid to assemble five bicycles per paycheck. Right? Um, so that's called a fixed ratio. Now a variable ratio, this is the one you need to put a star next to. This is the most reinforcing out of all these four categories. Okay. Why? Because a reinforcement is going to occur after an unpredictable number of responses. Okay? And this is the basis of video games. This is the basis of gambling devices. Right? Is this variable ratio. Um, getting a reward, for example, after pushing a lever. Right? It doesn't happen every time. It's not continuous. It happens once in a while. You just don't know when. But the casino knows that on average after 100 pulls, after 100 or 200 quarters, then the jackpot, jackpot comes out. So what's thrilling about gambling is that you just don't know which pull is going to happen. Again, it's not based on time, right? It's not based on time of day. Uh, and the same thing goes with lottery tickets, right? Lottery tickets are not based on time of day in terms of which ticket is going to be most likely to win, the 3 o'clock ticket or the 4 o'clock ticket, right? It's based on the sequence it ends up in the, in the roll of those lottery tickets. Okay, so the variable ratio, if you think about what's most addictive, okay, in terms of that kind of schedule, is a variable ratio. So next time you play a video game, think about how it's constructed. Why is it you keep on playing? What's the hook? What's fueling your behavior? It has to do with this variable ratio, right? Uh, it's an un you're getting reinforcements at an unpredictable end. Not interval, but unpredictable sequence. Okay? Alright, so you can see there's a, a, and usually textbooks give you a graph, but I'll just tell you that the variable ratio is the most powerful of the four. A fixed ratio, like the one about assembling bicycles, has a very powerful method to reinforce behavior. 
followed by variable interval, and the last one would be a fixed interval. Okay. All right, so let me go and skip over that. All right, one more topic, and then I'll finish this long, long lecture. And this is observational learning. It's also called the social learning theory. And this was developed by um, Albert, Albert Bandura. One of Albert Bandura, he was at Stanford, a social psychologist. One of his star students became my advisor, my main professor at the University of Houston. So it's kind of cool to sort of be indirectly linked to someone who has some fame in psychology. And observational learning is basically role modeling, right? We we see this all the time, you know, we watch a YouTube video on how to assemble a deck, and then we go out to the backyard and assemble the deck, right? So we, we can learn by watching. That is, we don't always learn through classical conditioning or through operant conditioning that our mind you know, these internal processes are real, right? We can't avoid, uh, behaviors cannot always avoid what's happening inside our mind. So, but what's interesting here is that we don't copy everything we see. You know, we watch a lot of violent movies, right? You know, but we don't all go out there the next day and start killing people, you know, shooting up people. Uh, some people do, but the vast majority of us adults don't do that, okay? So what's the reason for that? And some of this research can give us an idea. So... Social learning theory is trying to explain how we learn things by observation without external reinforcements, okay? So the process is different. So, and it's not just watching and imitating everything, okay? There is something going on internally inside the mind that we filter. So maybe we watch something, we copy it. Maybe we watch something else and we don't copy it, okay? So this is kind of common sense once you look at it. But the basic processes of social learning theory, that is, observational learning, is first we have to attend, we have to have attention. You have to see it or listen to it, right? We have to remember what we just observed. That's called retention. So we have attention, retention. Then we have to have the ability to reproduce that, copy that behavior. And we want to. We have to have motivation, right? So we have attention, retention, Reproduction and motivation, okay? Um, now, our motivation. Now, again, you see how the wording is different than Skinner, right? Skinner would never use motivation. That's an internal state, right? It's something happening inside the black box of our mind. Skinner would not observe that because it's not observable, right? But oftentimes, we will continue to do something because we saw it online in a video, and that's what we call vicarious reinforcement. Right? Have you ever heard of the term living vicariously? Right? Maybe you're following a travel blogger who's having this wonderful life living overseas. Okay? And, and you're having joy from watching those videos, travel videos. That's called vicarious. You're, you're living vicariously through that traveler. Right? So it's indirect. So this is the process where an observer sees a model, the role model, being rewarded. Right? And then that observer, that's you, more likely to imitate that behavior, okay? So anyway, so that's called vicarious reinforcement. But what if you, and do you remember the, the Jackass series of television shows where young people do like all sorts of stupid stunts and get hurt and all that, right? And then you have everyday people trying to do the same stunts on their bicycles or whatnot. 
and that became very popular for a while and you know most of us would just shake our heads going what the heck are they thinking of course that you would get hurt you know end up in the hospital but think about it right most of those shows or if we watch animation or action movies the reason we know that they're entertainment and we don't copy it but some people do is because think about what happens to someone who's in a war movie or or, or like these stunt type shows is that do they ever show realistic consequences of injury or death for those kinds of stunts right if they don't then they're not gonna have vicarious punishment right they're gonna see that oh you can do all those things and nothing happens to you I, I, I try to notice this in films whenever there's a fight scene and then the next day they're at work with no bruises no swelling no broken bones you know they just maybe have a band-aid on their forehead right and it's like oh okay well I guess um, punching each other in the face 20 times just results in a band-aid so by not seeing role models having realistic consequences it makes it more likely someone would engage in that behavior okay so if we do observe vicarious punishment then we're less likely to imitate that behavior now let me finish today with Albert Bandura's famous Bobo doll experiment now this is a very strange name but a Bobo doll is a very traditional old toy that's uh, inflatable okay don't go there it's not that kind of toy but it's a toy that kids play with where it's bottom heavy is usually shaped like a clown and you hit the face and it bounces back up okay that's what we're talking about okay just to be clear and Albert Bender wanted to know under what conditions would a child imitate an adult who was um, basically acting aggressively and violently toward the Bobo doll so they they videotape an adult role model basically kicking it a certain way you know uh, using a hammer hitting the head punching it a certain way so the actions are very deliberate so they wanted to see if, if the kids copied it you know they would copy it a certain way right so they didn't just randomly just attack it they, 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 they did certain things in a very systematic way and then later on they had these kids in different conditions and they placed them in a room that had a bunch of toys which included the bobo doll so it wasn't just the bobo doll and they put them in a situation where they got a little bit frustrated you know due to whatever circumstance they created and so when they're frustrated they took their aggression out on the bobo doll well a lot of the kids imitated the adult to the T exactly how the adult role model um, treated the bobo doll now the vicarious punishment reinforcement comes in here because in some instances if the adult role model in the video who beat up the bobo doll was admonished was verbally punished by someone saying no that was bad you shouldn't have done that the kids who watched that particular consequence were less likely to copy the role model's behavior but those who saw that either the person was rewarded for it oh they got a soda out of it well that's nice you know those kids were more likely to imitate and beat up the bobo doll or if there were no consequences whatsoever the video just sort of ended they were more likely to imitate right so imitation is not a guarantee just because a child is exposed to aggressive behavior as if the, it's, it's if the aggressive behavior was rewarded or there were no consequences for that behavior then they are more likely to act aggressively okay all right um, 
let's see what else I can tell. Uh, beside, also, if a weapon was used, for example, if there's a toy gun in the room, they actually did include that, right? And even if the role model did not use the toy gun, okay, compared to kids who were placed in that room and frustrated with all the toys, they compared them, one group that did not watch the aggressive role model in the video, they're just placed in the room versus another group of kids who watched the, you know, Boba doll being beat up. The ones who watched the aggressive role model were actually more likely to use the gun in a sort of stereotypically aggressive way, pointed at the, the Bobo doll, and to, to act like they're shooting it, right? So you see how the aggressive role model, even though their actions were very specific, spilled over to other kinds of aggressive behavior, even though they didn't specifically role model right and that was one of the consequences uh, that was seen so so the important conclusion here is that we don't copy everything we see right so this also led to a lot of research about uh, violent imagery on television and video games and what kind of effect it has and you can read that on your own but the research is a bit mixed on that because there's so many uh, factors involved in people's behavior and if you think about the hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of people playing uh, video games that are violent and how what percentage of those violent video game players end up being violent people um, those numbers tend to be very small because you know, you're not going to see millions of antisocial psychotic people out there just gunning down everybody in the neighborhood so there, there is a very complex thing to study aggressive in terms of aggression and violence and observational learning so anyhow I think I've reached the end of my speaking limit here um, hopefully you were able to pause and watch this video or listen to this podcast in chunks and not sit through the whole thing because right now it's probably three in the morning where you are and you fell asleep listening to maybe the first 15 minutes <laughs> okay so um, I think that's about it I think uh, I want to give you a little positive reinforcer for finishing this uh, lecture and uh yep you're the best give you a little pat on the back okay and try not to abuse your pets at home trying to experiment on them okay folks until the next video <laughs>